Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm your host, Oge Chibo. And I'm Ian Bukta. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that tackles issues in public health. Hey, Oge, what are we talking about today? Well, before we get into what we're going to talk about, I want to say a huge congratulations to all our graduates out there. So congratulations, class of 2020. You did that. Also, congratulations to the members of our From the Front Row podcast team that are graduating, aka our producer Ian Bukta is graduating. You'll be missed. Um, through it all, you guys made it, and we're all proud of you. We're all rooting for you. Yeah, and shout out to Haley as well, Haley Boudreau, who is also going to be graduating this semester. Um, I don't think I'm allowed to do this, but on behalf of all the 2020 graduates, why not? Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, uh, let's get into this show. What's going on? Well, we have a non-COVID-related interview and then some COVID coverage at the end. For our first story, we looked at equity and access to care, but we looked at it through a different lens than you might be used to. We decided to look at the field of athletic training. Athletic trainers are specialized allied health providers who deal with sports injuries and do much more, but not all athletes get to work with them. So. To understand who gets access to these trainers and what that might mean for long-term health equity, we got one of them on the phone. Ian talked to Kemba Noel London, an athletic trainer and doctoral candidate in public health management and policy at St. Louis University in St. Louis. Here's the interview. Then we'll be back with our COVID coverage afterwards. Thank you so much for joining me today. Can you state your name and what you do? Um, so my name is Kemba Noel London. I am a certified athletic trainer as well as a doctoral candidate in public health studies uh, focusing on health management and policy at St. Louis University. So and I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago, hence the glorious accent that will come out of my mouth <laughs> too often. Um, and I live and I reside in St. Louis. I'm in St. Louis via Trinidad and Tobago. In just a couple sentences, can you tell us what athletic training is all about? So, athletic trainers are highly qualified and multi-skilled healthcare professionals, um, and they work uh, under or in the direction of, uh, in collaboration with the physician. Um, they render treatment, which kind of encompasses prevention, uh, injury and orthopedic examination, so diagnosis, uh, treatment of re- treatment and rehabilitation of um, injuries, which include acute and chronic, and then as well as also medical conditions as well too. And they're also recognized by the American Medical Association Health Resource Services Administration, sorry, and the Department of Human Health Services as an allied health care profession, right? So, yeah, we exist and we've been doing this work for a while. Um, and it's, it's a very rewarding and interesting space to be in. But um, unfortunately, it's just something that athletic trainers are not that common, as we've seen in terms of having full-time access to an athletic trainer at the high school level. So what does health equity mean to you? Um, so to me, I kind of, I think about it as um, everyone having kind of a very fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible, to, to have the best optimal health, right? 
Um, and I think that that also includes acknowledging that there are different barriers for different groups of people. Um, and then obstacles like poverty and discrimination. Um, and then the impacts of those things um, impact their health as well, too. So we have to not only just think about health in uh, a numbers standpoint, but also think about health in terms of all the different social contexts that goes into impacting health and whether or not you can be on that path to being healthy, right? So or I think that's kind of how I think about health equity in, in, in that broad scope of, you know, all of these things impact um, or go into whether somebody can achieve or have the best opportunity to be healthy, right? And we have to be able to tailor those interventions, um, which is being fair and being just based on the groups and, and, and things and barriers that affect them. Yeah, and and when when we met, we met at a conference, and one of the things that you were talking about was health equity in physical therapy. Can you explain why it's so important that we achieve health equity, especially for athletes and high school athletes? Yeah, so let me clarify first in terms of like physical therapy and athletic training, right? Oh Um, oh my gosh. (laughs) No, you're good. You're fine. Like it is completely okay. And you like, uh, it is is completely okay. And it's because um, I think some people think when they hear athletic training, the immediate thought is like personal training. I work in a gym and it's like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm very much a qualified like medical professional. Um, I had to do a whole summer of gross anatomy, which is possibly the hardest class that I've ever had to do in my life. Um, so we are, we are very well-trained medical professionals um, and healthcare professionals. So we would fall under in the same category of allied health, like physical therapists as well. Well, we work and there's an overlap in terms of skills and things that we do and fields that we work in, but we also kind of have our separate um, um, work that we do, right? So yes, we work with athletes, but then you kind of think about, okay, what is the definition of an athlete, right? How do you now define who is and who is not an athlete, right? So you have athletic trainers who work in the military, there are athletic trainers who work in the army, and then you have those that work in like the quote-unquote traditional settings of uh, high school and college and professional sports and those kind of things as well too. So for me, so my work as an athletic trainer, I've worked with um, national teams from my country, um, also being a former athlete myself. So that was something that I was passionate about as well. Um, but I've also worked from the elite level all the way down to freshmen and middle school athletes as well too. So currently I work, I work primarily with say high school athletes and that kind of younger youth athletes crowd. Um, and for me, the reason why equity or health equity is so important in sport um, overall, and especially youth athletes, because they're not only athletes, right? Like though, like it doesn't, it doesn't impact them differently because they've now decided to play sport, right? Like mm-hmm. that's not the first moniker that happens when you think about health. Um, and then when we think about access to athletic training specifically, we know that only. of public schools have access to a full-time athletic trainer, right? Um, And then when there are some few studies that are coming out and that they show that lower-income schools or schools that are in lower-income communities um, and and most of these students identify as having free or reduced or access to free or reduced lunch, those are the ones that have the least access to athletic training, right? So then when we think about, okay, lower-income communities, so they're either underserved or uninsured, but already have a limited access to healthcare overall, and now they're participating in sport, which is always a great thing and a good thing. But then, if they get injured, what what happens? What what do we do? Right. So for me, 
access athlete training and that equity portion is really, really important there because we know that there are some long-term consequences that can happen with, say, repeated injuries or, say, with a concussion that isn't managed properly, right? Because now you're potentially impacting not only their health outcomes, but their educational outcomes as well, too, right? And that's the last thing that we would ever want is for somebody to participate in sports and then they'll be impacted for the rest of their life um, because of their participation in sport. And then, so athletic trainers can play a very big role of really um, impacting that socioeconomic gradient and all of those kind of things that go in together, just by giving that, giving athletes and youth athletes especially like access to this one person who has all of these skills. And we navigate or help our athletes and parents navigate that, that um, healthcare system. So we very much act as kind of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A patient navigator, right? We're trained that way. Like I've had to definitely be that middle person between translating doctor speak to the parents, <laughs> right? So that they understand, okay, this is what's going to happen. This is what they're saying and all this kind of thing. So for me, that's that's why I think health equity is important because I think sometimes we tend to think of athletes as only athletes and ignore all of the other social contexts that exist around them all the time. Yeah. And, and I want to jump into the long-term effects of, you know, of injuries on people's, you know, ability to work. But, but first, do you mind, uh, you, you mentioned that you were an athlete yourself and you've worked with the, um, your national team in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, can you talk a little bit about that before we jump into the long-term effects of injuries? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I, was a, I played volleyball uh, for my country from the age of 14 up until I think I was 18. Um, so I was a national volleyball athlete. Um, some of my friends still play for the national team, which is always kind of fun. When I came to St. Louis and I did my athletic training degree and then I went back home, my first national team that I worked with was the under-21 netball team. And netball is not a sport that is known in the U.S., but it's very well known and respected in the Commonwealth. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I worked with them. And then after that, that kind of just trickled into other things as well. And then so it was full circle for me when I worked with the volleyball team at uh, CAC Games, which is Central American and Caribbean Games. That was really full circle for me. So I was really glad that's something I got to experience in my life. Um, but my primary national team really introduced to me four years, three and a half, four years that I was in Trinidad um, was with rugby. So I worked a lot with our rugby men's uh, sevens and fifteens team. Shout out to rugby and rugby <laughs> and Trans-Vegas team. Um, they, I learned a lot there. I, rugby was not a sport that I had worked or really got exposure to in the U.S. because it's not, it's, it's a growing and emerging sport here. But again, it's something that's very popular outside of the U.S. Um, but my training in American football here definitely helped um, with in rugby. But then they're just they're very diff they're different sports <laughs> me yeah. in their own right. Um, so yeah, it was it's glorious and I loved it and I loved being able to give back to my country in that way um, and being able to give back to sports um, and to my friends um, in a way that you know is something I was passionate about when I tore my ACL when I was 16. So when I tore my ACL and just the way that it was handled and those kind of things, I was like, I don't want this to happen to anybody else. This sucks. Like I don't, don't want, yeah. so that just kind of, so my own injury set me on the path to where I am now. So when I was blessed very much with that opportunity to be able to not just work with other national teams, but my friends on the volleyball team as well too, I, I, I was very grateful and very glad that I now had these skills 
to be able to help them with their old injuries and this kind of thing. So, wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, it's cool to hear, you know, your background, both as a, as a, you know, an athlete, but also how that, that path set you into, uh, into your career now. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind me jumping back um, to just let's, let's chat about the long-term effects of injuries. You know, you mentioned that, you know, concussions or physical injuries, like that these can be really damaging long-term. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? So we are learning um, more and more about the true impact or long-term impact of concussions on athletes and athlete health and brain health and those kind of things as well. So, you know, we're, we're evolving in terms of the management of it. Um, but the general consensus, especially when you're working with athletes, is that, especially youth athletes, sorry, is that once you have signs and symptoms of a concussion, they're not, they don't go back into that game and go back into play. Um, so if you think about if you don't have access to somebody who has this knowledge or an athletic trainer who's there to now enforce that, right? Because, you know, I, there, are, there are some coaches who, um, you know, and not even, there are some kids, like, because everybody wants to play. They want to play, which is just the glory of being an athlete. Like, you want to play, you will sacrifice your body to do so. And sometimes you need somebody who's like, I get it. I want you to play. My job is, my job is to keep you playing, but also keep you playing while also keeping you healthy, Right. Because with, with the brain, it doesn't heal the same way like a muscle. Like I can't, I, every time, if I have had to, when I've had to tell a kid and their parents, I suspect your child has a concussion, this is what we need to do. The question I usually get asked after is like, okay, how long am I out for? Like, I can't, I can't tell you that, right? Because your brain doesn't heal, doesn't have the same like injury healing timeline as a muscle or bone and those kind of things. Um, but we know like if you have repeated concussions, that can have a long-term sequelae for, you know, your educational outcomes, your ability to focus and concentrate. And then there's CTE that, you know, the research is really emerging on what that looks like and, and not seeing it in younger athletes or trying to really prevent that. So again, that's how tying in having an athletic trainer can now impact long-term health, not only as an athlete, a youth athlete, but just you as a functioning member of society as well. This is me speaking from personal experience of having concussions. They're not fun, and, and there's really no way to, to predict when you're going to heal. And then I've had three concussions in my life, all within my late 20s, <laughs> oh. involved biking and being hit by a car and being a car accident and those kind of things. And I've noticed for me, like, I've had issues in terms of concentrating. So I had to retool the way that... I did school the way that I study because I always was a night person and I would always stay up that late, but now I can't. So I have to retool and rework the way that I do school. And that's usually also the management that we do with athletes as well. Like you sometimes have to work with schools and work with their, um, with these teachers and those kind of things to create programs to say, right, well, they're having trouble concentrating. Maybe we can just do half days, right? They only come in school Monday through Wednesday in the morning and they go home and rest and then they do Thursday, Friday in the evening, right? You end up having to be creative. But again, you need that person there that stands in the gap for that athlete and able to advocate to say, no, they have a concussion. This is why X, Y, Z is going on. Um, And then if we think about musculoskeletal health as well, um, you always, somebody has that grandpa somewhere that's like, I injured my knee in high school, so I have a trick knee, right? As much as it's, can be humorous but the reality is that's very much a possibility if you have an injury say like an ankle 
that become that you just never really take care of and then it becomes chronic and then it just you have this ankle that always seems to get sprained um or you just have this chronic pain going on later in life like you think about how that's going to potentially impact your physical activity levels um later on but even just now as a kid right like they may not want to or their parents themselves like i've had um parents or kids tell me that their parent doesn't want them to play sports anymore because they can't afford afford for them to be injured not so much they don't want them to it's just you have to, they have to make a decision between other other things that they have to manage and then the cost of being injured yeah that's that's interesting and like really rough to hear you know because I, I was someone who got hurt quite a few times playing sports growing up right. but my parents yeah were able to take me to outside physical therapy after you know the trainers referred us mm-hmm. and so there are definitely equity issues that you're identifying how do you think we fix the the equity issues that we see you know in the field of athletic training and, and how do we you know make the public healthier that way um so i think um I think fix is gonna try. Gonna try. I think this is a try. Um, I think it, it's something that needs to be addressed in both fields, so athletic training and public health as well. Um, so, like, I remember when I started this public health journey, I was definitely the odd man out, right? Like, my classmates in my cohort didn't really know anything about athletic training. They didn't really know we existed, and then they also didn't really know the large scope of skills that I have and that. I can work and I have worked in. Um, and then that conversation kind of translated upwards to professors as well, right? Like professors really and truly didn't understand athletic training and then what we do. So which let me know that my profession has to do a lot more work in terms of how, not only of how we're advocating for our inclusion in, in these spaces, but also how we're marketing ourselves as well, right? Yeah. Um, so I think, I, think, I think that's part of it. I also think athletic training itself has to merge more information like on the social determinants of health um, bias and the impacts of discrimination and racism into curriculums and then continuing education programs because they affect our population too right like poverty and racism don't take a break while you're on the field or in the athletic training room and they manifest themselves in that space as well too um, so I say all of this and I also acknowledge that the, the National Athletic Trainers Association to the NAPA is, is definitely trying to make a push towards including more of this. I say, but I think it's important for allied health and public health professionals to really interface and connect on a more regular basis. Um, I think athletic trainers, as athletic trainers, we have to be able to speak the language of the wider healthcare system beyond the musculoskeletal health and reimbursement. Um, and I think on the athletic training side, like for, especially on the sports med side in general, I think it's my opinion um, that once we really start to be engaged in the communities that we're serving um, and really understand health at the population level and the disparities that are affecting our communities because they, they need to become our community and not their community, I think it'll really help to inform and shape the decisions that we make at, at the micro and even like macro level as well. So then on the public health side of things, I think that we also have to remember that if we're encouraging kids to utilize sport as a way to get physical activity, right? Or if we're using sport as an intervention, say like in positive youth development frameworks and those kind of things, we have to also make sure that it's safe for them to do so. 
right? Um, because injury is part of sports. Like, it, we can't predict when it might happen. Or if it, it might, there are some people who just never get injured, which is glorious and great. And I wish I was that person. But for me, that was not my reality. Injury was just part of sports. Um, it does not have to be something that sidelines a kid indefinitely. It definitely doesn't have to be something that becomes chronic. And it should never be something that becomes catastrophic. When especially there's a group of people who are trained and ready and willing and they do already stand in the gap for athletes and their health so they should intentionally be included um especially if you're thinking about utilizing sports as a physical activity intervention like we i think public health also has to become more aware um of athletic training and the things that they do so it's it's, it's intertwined um, and then one way we kind of explored that is looking at school-based health centers so i was placed on staff in a school-based health center in um, St. Louis, which is, I guess, how we met because we were at my poster talking about it. And it was interesting to see just how the multifaceted impact of putting athletic trainer in, in the school-based health center. So we saw, like, new visits increase because they were now coming to see the athletic trainer, right? And not only that, like, having the athletic trainer also allowed for the, the perception of the clinic to change. So when we did a survey, the kids... Um, said that before they viewed the clinic as an STI clinic. So they wouldn't want to say that they're going to the clinic because then the connotation of, of, of that sentence. But now you have Coach K in the clinic. So they're like, all right, I'm just going to go see Coach K. So in order to get to <laughs> Coach K, you also had to go through like your regular checkup and all those kind of things. So through that, we saw immunizations increase, the number of new visits, the number of returning visits increase as well. Um, behavioral health increase which I think also as an athletic trainer like you build a different rapport and relationship with your athletes because I'm seeing you every day after school um, whether it be for rehab or at practice and those kind of things and it's I can now say right here's Miss I don't want to use her name Miss B go see Miss B I think she might be able to help you with XYZ and those kind of things as well too so I think it, it just I think that's a great example of how just having one person who has all of the skills can really kind of bridge the gaps between not just athletes but a kind of a whole school population as well too. Yeah. And and I'm gonna kind of transition now to the kind of the back half of our show. So yeah. I just have two last questions. Okay. Um so the first is what is one thing that you thought you knew but later realized that you were wrong about? Uh, I would say it's not really a recent realization. Um, I think for me, when I came back to the U.S., I um, and I and I was working in the school that I was in. I recognized. Um, I didn't think that I really had any utility as being like a foreign athletic trainer that makes sense as an immigrant athletic trainer right because it's 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 i mean with all the other conversations about immigration and all the kind of thing going on but just in general like it is very hard to be an athletic trainer with an accent yeah. <laughs> like gotta read and it's funny because then i'll go home and i'll get crap about my accent being different <laughs> like, for my survival and for the bad benefit of my patients i have to tweak my accent right which i mean Sounds like something minor, but I mean, it's very rooted in my identity as a Trinidadian. Um, and, and for a while, um, because of previous experiences that I've had within the profession, and even like 
the first class is trying to get a job within the field as an international actress, you know. I started to feel like I didn't really have any utility um, or any space for me here. So then when I came back and I got placed at, and I was working in school-based health center, which in school serves a lot of um, refugee um, kids and immigrant kids, I recognized that I got put on this class for a reason and, uh, and I didn't see it then. I see it now um, because there is space for people like me here um, because the I am able to connect with immigrant kids um, and black kids who look like me and who sound like me and then you know we're often not told that we don't belong here. I'm able to connect with them because I've had similar experiences. Um, so I, I, I think I was yeah so I was wrong in terms of my utility and my belongingness. This is not a word but I'm going to make it a word. <laughs> and I and I and so I'm glad that that I was able to change that view of my own um power here um because i'd be able to you know educate the staff and like okay the reason why i got different information than you did is because of that understanding of like dad is not in charge in this family hierarchy this is a matriarchal society mommy's in charge so we need to talk to mommy not dad right um and there's some there's just a camaraderie that happens when you hear somebody else who has an accent <laughs> it, it just there's something that happens. You're like, yay! You sound <laughs> different. You don't sound like me, but you sound different, and that's okay. Uh, we can now commiserate about different things. So, yeah, which is a very long-winded answer to your question, but that—that's what I—I've been thinking about. It's like, you know, there's there's value, and there's power in difference, and it's something to be celebrated, and it's something to be used for good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, that was like a really powerful answer. And also just like, you know, it sounded deeply personal. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. You're very welcome. And, and the last question I have is what's one thing outside of your work, outside of the world of public health that has interested you recently? Like, so as I, when I was younger, my brother definitely used to joke about me um, meeting a Thinkers Anonymous group and he said he would create one because I just thought about everything all the time, everywhere. Um, and I think that kind of, you know, explains why I'm now a PhD candidate. Um, so for me, I was, I was, I thought about this and I thought, I was thinking about Carnival. So Carnival just happened recently in Trinidad and Tobago. And I was going through what we call Tabanka. So Tabanka is just kind of Trini for being in a sad mood. Um, so, and it's usually <laughs> used in reference to relationships and those kind of things where you can use it in this context as well so i was going through some tobacco because i was just missing the energy that really just consumes the entire country during that time um and i also miss the public holidays because then you get monday and tuesday off and then it's an option really to go to work on ash wednesday i also miss those things as well um but it's just like i just miss doing those things with my mom like in terms of going to one of our legendary local poets, Fourteen Douglas, who would go to his show often every year. Well, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Thanks very much for having me. This was fun. And I'm very glad that whatever happens, thank you having to walk past my poster. This is glorious. And I thoroughly enjoy having the conversation.
So, okay, what do you think about the interview? Yeah, so first of all, I think that was a great interview, and I think everyone enjoyed it as much as I did. And obviously, I think health equity is a very, very important topic. And I love the fact that Kemba is also looking into that with like athletic training. Honestly, I never even really knew like athletic training was a thing, (laughs) even if obviously it's obvious. I'm just not really an athletic person, but still like health, we can see health equity in everything and anything that we do. And it's a huge part of public health. Honestly, it's a huge part of all of us, like just living in a community, whether you think about it from a lens of, Oh, it's health equity or health inequity or whatever. It affects us all. And I think coming or bringing into an awareness like, oh, there's a problem. Like we are all living like, oh, there's no problem. We're not just doing whatever we need to do. And as I said before, talking to someone is that like things like maybe common sense or when we're talking about things being normal, it's only normal within your own sphere or your own bubble. And once you go out of that bubble, then you extend, you get to see how, things are not really what you thought it was and it's different for different people and how can you change that I think even as like normal I don't say normal human being but like as the average people the mass we have a voice in as much as our voices are suppressed or are not as loud as other voices in our environment or in the world but we can definitely do something it could be little things maybe just I don't know and I think that's one of the reasons I even stayed in public health, like health equity, social determinants of health. I honestly came into public health thinking I was just going to learn about pathogens <laughs> and diarrhea and you know, all those things. And then I came and it was like so much more. And I was like, oh, like this is the first time I'm actually really enjoying school and the things I'm learning. And that's because like it took me aback and I'm like, this is even better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, and for our listeners who might not know what social determinants of health are, um, really when we talk about the social determinants of health, we're, we're talking about all the things like where you live, what job you work, what your income is, what your education level is, uh, just all of these factors that are outside of medicine that are going to impact your health. Mm-hmm. And they, as you're noting, they are so important. As Oge is noting, they are so important. I think one of the things that I think about when when I think about this interview with Kemba is the idea that when we teach our athletes in high school that, you know, put it all on the line, you know, you got to win. Um, and we don't tell them, and I think she brought up this point pretty well, we don't tell them that you're going to have to live the rest of your life in the same body that you won that championship in. And so, you know do your best. And if you get hurt and you have an athletic trainer to, to go to your outcome is going to be so different. And I think that, you know, as you were saying, just getting everyone access to that care will prevent many long-term injuries, just as Kemba noted. So thank you so much to Kemba Noel London for coming on this episode Um, We are now going to transition to a bit of COVID news and an explainer. Uh, I'm going to start. I think this is a quick little thing uh, that I've seen and I've been asked by a lot of people. uh, And that is, what is the difference between an antibody test and an RNA test? Are there differences in the tests? And like, when should they be applied and how should they be applied? So I'm going to kind of jump through it really quick. Uh, PCR testing a polymerase chain reaction test 
uh, they test for the presence of the virus. And the thing about this is it can only detect the virus, they can only become positive when the virus is in the body or, you know, false positives, but we'll get there. Um, but they can also detect dead viruses after the infection has run its course um, for a short time. And then after which, um, after that short window of from the time you become infected and can be picked up by PCR to at the last point, potentially when there are dead viruses in your body that PCR can pick up, that short window, which can, only, can be just a couple weeks, uh, you can't detect the fact that someone had COVID after that point. So this, the PCR test is just to detect the virus's particles. Um, they are extremely accurate and often uses the reference standard for other metrics of testing. Um, one of the main shortcomings they have is if they're contaminated. Uh, but otherwise, they are relatively a relatively effective method of testing and usually the standard that people test to. Now, the alternative is an antibody test. And this is the part that we, when you hear about the tests that are proven, they're talking about PCR tests. When they're talking about the tests that we're trying to apply, uh, these are the antibody tests. So these are the tests that, you're, that are looking for your body's response to the virus. The value of these is that they will be useful down the line you know, potentially months on, they can test whether your body can mount an immune defense against the virus and whether you had it. And so they won't be positive at first. So they're not really useful within that first week. Uh, but afterwards, your body will have different immune, uh, immunoglobulins that it will pick up. And so the important reason for this is that uh, they are not always applicable, and we've seen them applied in populations that really shouldn't be shouldn't be being tested using these these tests. And what do I mean by that? Well, if your population has a very low number of people who are infected and that have have recovered from COVID nineteen, these tests can deliver a false, a very high false positive rate that will distort the results, and. This will seriously overestimate the number of people who have antibodies against the virus and will give people the impression that they are protected when they are not. And so that's a, that's, that's a problem because if you have people walking around saying, I have antibodies when they don't, and they think that that's going to protect them, that's a serious problem. If you are seeing these studies that are done and they're using antibody testing on a pop, uh, population that has maybe 1% of the people infected, you and you know there's a 90 to 95 percent sensitivity or and specificity well then you are potentially going to have a very bad study that is not going to accurately estimate the population prevalence we've seen this running throughout the media and i just want to give people a little bit of perspective to interpret uh the the evidence that people are presenting yeah. Okay. So item number two is talking about, we're talking about meat packing plants. And basically they have had a huge surge in cases throughout the Midwest and it has been in the news recently. Many of the workers in this plant are migrant workers, but this idea is bigger than just a footnote. If you want to know more about migrant workers and how they fit the United States, both in normal times and during a pandemic, we will talk about that next week. <laughs> All right, we're out of here. You can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're on Spot iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health.
let us know what you thought about this episode and series at cph-gradambassador.uio.edu. That's cph-g-r-a-d-a-m-b-a-s-s-a-d-o-r at uio.wa.edu. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Ian Bukta and Oge Chibo. It was edited and produced by Ian Bukta. Thank you to our guest, Kemba Noel London, for coming on the pod this week. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. See you next week! Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're a student-run podcast that tackles issues in public health. I'm your host, Ian Bukta. We're, I deleted the wrong part. <laughs> oh, we need to restart everything because I yeah. put the, yeah.